MPN Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello and welcome to the MPN Hub Podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Laura Michaels of the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, US, and Claire Harrison of Guys and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust in London, UK. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm Laura Michaels. I'm at the Medical College of Wisconsin, where I focus on uh, myeloid diseases, including myeloproliferative neoplasms. And I'm here with Claire Harrison. Claire? Hi, I'm Claire Harrison. I work at Guys and St. Thomas's uh, Hospital, uh, which is in central London. And my main focus is also on myeloproliferative neoplasms. It's great to be with you today, Laura. Absolutely. Uh, even if it's virtual, one of these days we'll get back to real life. So we had hoped to um, spend a little bit of time today talking about some of the best practices in MPNs and maybe rolling in some of the new data that we got from the American Society of meeting last month. So I want to start with just some sort of best practices in diagnosing MPNs. And one of the things that comes up in my, in what I see is not everybody's getting a bone marrow biopsy. And some people are getting next generation sequencing um, done no matter what stage of the disease. So let's start there a little bit. Claire, who do you um, think needs a bone marrow biopsy when somebody has been told they have a myeloproliferative neoplasm, either PV, ET, or myelofibrosis? I think um, it's really important to be absolutely certain about the diagnosis, or as certain as you can be. And, and if you can't be certain, say you're not certain, and call the patient at MPN, NOS, or unclassified. And I absolutely think that getting a bone marrow biopsy is a really important part of that, not just to say, oh, this patient's got a high platelet count, they're JAK2 positive, they must have ET, because... Um, sometimes, um, you know, some subtleties can be missed that can be found in the biopsy, so increase in fibrosis, and uh, there can be other features that can come to light. So these can be rare things like mastocytosis, which can commonly co-present with an MPN, or sometimes, you know, uh, taking, for example, myelofibrosis, um, a misdiagnosis of CMML, which would be managed differently. So I think it's useful to do a bone marrow biopsy for the vast majority of patients. Also from the perspective of having a kind of baseline test, should things change in the future. But the other things that we do at Diagnosis Laura are also um, sort of genomic testing, aren't they? And there's a temptation to, you know, want all the information you possibly can and, and think about, you know, allele bird and then, then wider genomic screening. So what are your pearls of wisdom on that? Yeah, so first off, I just want to concur that I also encourage every person I see who either is referred with a diagnosis of myeloproliferative neoplasm or where we're considering that to undergo a bone marrow biopsy, not only because I agree that the absolute, as clear a diagnosis as you can have, but I also think it matters quite prognostically. So for example, the difference between a prefibrotic myelofibrosis and essential thrombocythemia those may look the same from peripherally. Um, the marrow itself is sometimes different, um, but importantly, the, the overall trajectory of that person's disease is different. Um, we know that ET and, uh, and prefibrotic myelofibrosis behave differently, and prefibrotic myelofibrosis and frank fibrotic myelofibrosis behave differently. So I feel like it's an important part of that, that the diagnostic biopsy in all conditions of MPN is indeed important. In terms of next generation sequencing, so 
I generally tell my patients that for the time being, NGS is predominantly a prognostic marker, not a diagnostic marker. And so the initial workup of diagnosis doesn't necessarily need to include it. Now, in myelofibrosis, in patients where I'm considering a stem cell transplant, I do um, think about um, that because of our new scoring system. For example, the MIPSS 70 incorporates next generation sequencing and can really give us a very um, a reliable way to look at um, the overall survival uh, in the next five years and can also give me some additional information about making a key and difficult decision about when to refer a patient for stem cell transplantation. At the current time, next generation sequencing, while, in, while maybe prognostically important, isn't as relevant in a patient with polycythemia vera or ET. So unless it's in a research setting, I don't typically send off NGS in, that in those two patient populations. Is that the same as your practice? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I was just thinking as you were talking, I think a really tricky area is the triple negative patients with a thrombocytosis. And these are often young women. And we were having a really interesting discussion, Perry Ash, about that in the UK, actually. And here, I think and many of us would shy away from doing a biopsy. I think it's really important because if you don't see characteristic features, you can be certain that pretty much that the patient doesn't have ET. And I also wanted to make the comment that I actually don't think an NGS is helpful there unless there are, you know, mixed features or you're not mm -hmm. certain. Um, right. Because most times we won't find anything and most times we won't find anything in an ET or a PV patient where we want to, you know, we're tempted maybe to tick the box and get the test. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so one of the, uh, let's just shift over. I want to talk about incredibly common situations that I see in the clinic, and that is a patient with myelofibrosis where the primary problem is anemia. And so this is a patient who's got maybe a two plus fibrosis in the marrow, an enlarged spleen, a hemoglobin in the low eights or high sevens who's symptomatic with fatigue. Um, the large spleen may be contributing a little bit of that anemia because of some hemolysis, as you might get some hemolysis from the marrow. That's a person who's symptomatic. And yet when I put them on a, on a, a jack inhibitor, I'm concerned about additional anemia. So we have some new, this is certainly an area of incredible research going on recently. We've got some new therapies possible. We've got one new jack inhibitor that is trying to position itself in particular for the some for the preserved person with anemia at diagnosis. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about some of the novel agents that are being considered in the anemic MF patient. For example, pelabrecib, um, which people have heard about for a few years now, who's patercept, uh, for example, as well as momolotinib. And um, you know, you've, you've worked with momolotinib a lot. Maybe we can talk briefly about that agent and how it compares to the other JAK inhibitors that are out there. Sure. Well, I think uh, anemia is, is a really an, a big area of unmet need. And um, one of the things I always say to people in my clinic, though, is don't assume it's just due to the disease. Don't get caught out with somebody with bleeding varices and always check the hematinose. Um, 
and yet we still get caught out from time to time right <laughs> <laughs> um so i think memolotinib um, i'm really waiting for the results of the momentum study so just the the in many ways, this is similar to roxalitinib, but it targets the hepcidin pathway and really learning a lot and focusing a lot on the iron pathway, aren't we? And, and, mm -hmm. and the factors that influence that. So certainly appears to deliver similar spleen and symptom responses and maybe be able to alleviate disease-related anemia currently being evaluated in the momolotinib study. And that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to hearing about going forward. I mean, in terms of um, other agents that we've been looking at, you know, there are, of course, the Lisbatacep story is really interesting in the MDS setting and in the thalassemia setting. And ASH, there was some more final data from Cetatacept um, that was presented by the MD Anderson group. And I think potentially Lisbatacept being taken forward in combination with um, roxalitinib or another agent, fedratinib, for example, in MF is interesting. And um, what do you think about that, Laura? Yeah, the I thought I, I was I I did pay particular attention to the loose patercept and so tattercept data. That's agents that are relatively relatively straightforward to give. They don't have a lot of side toxicities, not a lot of overlapping toxicities. Um, the loose patterns of data, I think it was presented by Dr. Gerds, that phase two study, wasn't a huge number of patients, I think about 40 or 41 patients total with endpoints in those that were transfusion dependent of becoming non-transfusion dependent. And in those that were non-transfusion dependent of about a gram and a half of increase. And um, I think the results were in about the 20% range on both groups, but they didn't see a lot of toxicities. So I think that's, you know, maybe good for some of the patients, even if they didn't meet that strict 1.5 gram above, they did become less anemic. And as you know, patients can really be quite sensitive to that. The SOTATERCEP data, I think the final data out of MD Anderson, about a 30% response rate of using that agent. Again, it is IV, which is a problem, but every three weeks or so, and not a huge number of toxicities. I've been involved in the Pelabresib study, which is the um, study of a bromodomine inhibitor in combination with ruxolitinib. And we've had results published, or um, I guess at, at ASH, the last two on that, which does see, again, not only spleen reduction, but improvements in transfusion dependent arms, both in combination and in the monotherapy agents. So that also I think is, probably coming to be approved, to be used as a doublet, probably sometime in the next two quarters, at least from my understanding, um, that particular agent. We may see more bromodomain inhibitors. Um, the other thing that's interesting is this, as you mentioned, the Herceptin pathway. We're seeing interestingly both the Herceptin pathway being upregulated for patients with PV, for example, novel agents to try and keep their anemia to provoke anemia and then trying to prevent the Herceptin pathway in patients with um, myelofibrosis, given that this kind of classical anemia with chronic disease or anemia of inflammation is in, at play in those patients. Yeah, I think that's super interesting, isn't it? And, and manipulating that pathway in PV and some agents which can maybe alleviate the need for venesection. But really importantly for me, it was about alleviating the symptoms of iron deficiency for those patients, mm -hmm. so pruritus, exactly. fatigue, et cetera. And um, 
all of these agents are kind of ongoing in clinical trials. And, and another area I just wanted to highlight, we haven't seen a new drug for ET for a while, have we, Laura? So, no. <laughs> in fact, you know, more than a decade, maybe two. Um, super excited to see uh, the LSD1 inhibitor, Bomodemstat, mm-hmm. being looked at for ET patients. So that's, as we've tested that in MF, and maybe you've also been involved with that, I think, and we titrate that um, drug dose against the platelet count. So it seemed a logical next step to look in ET patients. And so th- there was data presented at ASH so showing nice responsiveness of the platelet count. Some also just looking beyond the normal, so um, beyond uh, platelets and symptoms, some also some molecular data. And just kind of tying into the last conversation about um, bromodomain inhibitors, pelabresib is also being tested in ET patients. So important because there are very few treatment options for those patients and also as a practice point, being aware that the patients who are refractory to treatment often have a really bad outlook. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think we're bumping up on our time here. I wanna thank you, Dr. Harrison, for taking the time. It's always good to kind of have a chance to reflect on what's new coming down the pike and um, also get back to the basics. Um, you know, I, as I'm sure you do, I talk to my trainees. The first step is always diagnosis. The second step is risk stratification. And the third step is treatment. And so making sure that we're all doing the basics for risk stratification and diagnosis before we move to some um, novel, interesting and compelling treatments is, uh, is great sort of basic, basic reminders. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to join you. Absolutely. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the NPN Hub podcast. We would also like to thank our supporters, Bristol Myers Squibb and Novartis. NPN Hub podcasts brought to you by Scientific Education Support.